Chapter 3.6 of the 9-11 Commission Report This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bob Siebold The 9-11 Commission Report Chapter 3.6 And in the White House Because coping with terrorism was not and is not the sole province of any component of the U.S. government, some coordinating mechanism is necessary. When terrorism was not a prominent issue, the State Department could perform this role. When the Iranian hostage crisis developed, this procedure went by the board. National Security Advisor Zvigniew Brzezinski took charge of crisis management. The Reagan administration continued and formalized the practice of having presidential staff coordinate counterterrorism. After the killing of the Marines in Beirut, President Reagan signed National Security Directive 138, calling for a shift from passive to active defense measures and reprogramming or adding new resources to effect the shift. It directed the State Department to intensify efforts to achieve cooperation of other governments and the CIA to intensify use of liaison and other intelligence capabilities and also to develop plans and capability to preempt groups and individuals planning strikes against U.S. interests. Speaking to the American Bar Association in July 1985, the president characterized terrorism as an act of war and declared there can be no place on earth where it is safe for these monsters to rest to train or practice their cruel and deadly skills we must act together or unilaterally if necessary to ensure that terrorists have no sanctuary anywhere the airstrikes against libya were one manifestation of this strategy through most of president reagan's second term the coordination of counterterrorism was overseen by a high-level interagency committee chaired by the deputy national security adviser but the reagan administration closed with a major scandal that cast a cloud over the notion that the white house should guide counterterrorism president reagan was concerned because hezbollah was taking americans hostage and periodically killing them he was also constrained by a bill he signed into law that made it illegal to ship military aid to anti-communist contra guerrillas in nicaragua whom he strongly supported. His national security adviser, Robert McFarland, and McFarland's deputy, Admiral John Poindexter, thought the hostage problem might be solved and the U.S. position in the Middle East improved if the United States quietly negotiated with Iran about exchanging hostages for modest quantities of arms. Schultz and Weinberger, united for once, opposed McFarland and Poindexter. A staffer for McFarland and Poindexter, Marine Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, developed a scheme to trade U.S. arms for hostages and divert the proceeds to the Contras to get around U.S. law. He may have had encouragement from Director of Central Intelligence William Casey. When the facts were revealed in 1986 and 1987, it appeared to be the 1970s all over again, a massive abuse of covert action. Now, instead of stories about poisoned cigars and mafia hitmen, Americans heard testimony about a secret visit to Tehran by McFarland using an assumed name, and bearing a chocolate cake decorated with icing depicting a key. An investigation by a special counsel resulted in the indictment of McFarland, Poindexter, North, and ten others, including several high-ranking officers from the CIA's clandestine service. The investigation spotlighted the importance of accountability and official responsibility for faithful execution of laws. For the story of 9-11, the significance of the Iran-Contra affair was that it made parts of the bureaucracy reflexively skeptical about any operating directive from the White House. As the National Security Advisor's function expanded, 
the procedures and structure of the advisor's staff, conventionally called the National Security Council staff, became more formal. The advisor developed recommendations for presidential directives, differently labeled by each president. For President Clinton, they were to be presidential decision directives. For President George W. Bush, national security policy directives. These documents and many others requiring approval by the president worked their way through interagency committees, usually composed of departmental representatives at the assistant secretary level or just below it. The NSC staff had senior directors who would sit on these interagency committees, often as chair, to facilitate agreement and to represent the wider interests of the national security advisor. When President Clinton took office, he decided right away to coordinate counterterrorism from the White House. On January 25, 1993, Mir Amal Khansi, an Islamic extremist from Pakistan, shot and killed two CIA employees at the main highway entrance to CIA headquarters in Virginia. Khansi drove away and was captured abroad much later. Only a month afterward came the World Trade Center bombing, and a few weeks after that, the Iraqi plot against former President Bush. President Clinton's first national security advisor, Anthony Lake, had retained from the Bush administration the staffer who dealt with crime, narcotics, and terrorism, a portfolio often known as drugs and thugs, the veteran civil servant Richard Clark. President Clinton and Lake turned to Clark to do the staff work for them in coordinating counterterrorism. Before long, he would chair a mid-level interagency committee eventually titled the Counterterrorism Security Group, or CSG. We will later tell of Clark's evolution as an advisor on, and in time, manager of the U.S. counterterrorist effort. When explaining the missile strike against Iraq provoked by the plot to kill President Bush, President Clinton stated, From the first days of our revolution, America's security has depended on the clarity of the message. Don't tread on us. A firm and commensurate response was essential to protect our sovereignty, to send a message to those who engage in state-sponsored terrorism, to deter further violence against our people, and to affirm the expectation of civilized behavior among nations. In his State of the Union message in January 1995, President Clinton promised comprehensive legislation to strengthen our hand in combating terrorists, whether they strike at home or abroad. In February, he sent Congress proposals to extend federal criminal jurisdiction, to make it easier to deport terrorists, and to act against terrorist fundraising. In early May, he submitted a bundle of strong amendments. The interval had seen the news from Tokyo in March that a doomsday cult, Am Shrin Rikyo, had released sarin nerve gas in a subway, killing 12 and injuring thousands. The sect had extensive properties and laboratories in Japan and offices worldwide, including one in New York. Neither the FBI nor the CIA had ever heard of it. In April had come the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Immediate suspicions that it had been the work of Islamists turned out to be wrong, and the bombers proved to be American anti-government extremists named Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. President Clinton proposed to amend his earlier proposals by increasing wiretap and electronic surveillance authority for the FBI, requiring that explosives carry traceable tagants, and providing substantial new money not only for the FBI and CIA, but also for local police. President Clinton issued a classified directive in June 1995, Presidential Decision Directive 39, which said that the United States should deter, defeat, and respond vigorously to all terrorist attacks on our territory and against our citizens. The directive called terrorism both a matter of national security and a crime, 
and it assigned responsibilities to various agencies. Alarmed by the incident in Tokyo, President Clinton made it the very highest priority for his own staff and for all agencies to prepare to detect and respond to terrorism that involved chemical, biological, or nuclear weapons. During 1995 and 1996, President Clinton devoted considerable time to seeking cooperation from other nations in denying sanctuary to terrorists. He proposed significantly larger budgets for the FBI, with much of the increase designated for counterterrorism. For the CIA, he essentially stopped cutting allocations and supported requests for supplemental funds for counterterrorism. When announcing his new national security team after being re-elected in 1996, President Clinton mentioned terrorism first in a list of several challenges facing the country. In 1998, after bin Laden's fatwa and other alarms, President Clinton accepted a proposal from his national security advisor Samuel Sandy Berger and gave Clark a new position as national coordinator for security, infrastructure protection, and counterterrorism. He issued two presidential decision directives, numbers 62 and 63, that built on the assignments to agencies that had been made in Presidential Decision Directive 39, laid out 10 program areas for counterterrorism, and enhanced, at least on paper, Clark's authority to police these assignments. Because of concerns especially on the part of Attorney General Reno, this new authority was defined in precise and limiting language. Clark was only to provide advice regarding budgets and to coordinate the development of interagency agreed guidelines for action. Clark also was awarded a seat on the cabinet-level Principals Committee when it met on his issues, a highly unusual step for a White House staffer. His interagency body, the CSG, ordinarily reported to the Deputies Committee of sub-cabinet officials unless Berger asked them to report directly to the principals. The complementary directive, number 63, defined the elements of the nation's critical infrastructure and considered ways to protect it. Taken together, the two directives basically left the Justice Department and the FBI in charge at home and left terrorism abroad to the CIA, the State Department, and other agencies under Clark's and Berger's coordinating hands. Explaining the new arrangement and his concerns in another commencement speech, this time at the Naval Academy in May 1998, the President said, First, we will use our new integrated approach to intensify the fight against all forms of terrorism, to capture terrorists, no matter where they hide, to work with other nations, to eliminate terrorist sanctuaries overseas, to respond rapidly and efficiently to protect Americans from terrorism at home and abroad. Second, we will launch a comprehensive plan to detect, deter, and defend against attacks on our critical infrastructures, our power systems, water supplies, police, fire and medical services, air traffic control, financial services, telephone systems, and computer networks. Third, we will undertake a concerted effort to prevent the spread and use of biological weapons and to protect our people in the event these terrible weapons are ever unleashed by a rogue state, a terrorist group, or an international criminal organization. Finally, we must do more to protect our civilian population from biological weapons. Clearly, the President's concern about terrorism had steadily risen. That heightened worry would become even more obvious early in 1999, when he addressed the National Academy of Sciences and presented his most somber account yet of what could happen if the United States were hit, unprepared, by terrorists wielding either weapons of mass destruction or potent cyber weapons. End of chapter 3.6 Recording by Bob Siebold